Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's a glorious day to give praise to our God. And I'm declaring today that I am going to praise him. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in this mouth. Hallelujah. Just, I want to praise him. That's what the song says. I just want to praise him for all that he has done. He's been a keeper. He's been a sustainer. He's been my help. He's been my comfort. He's been everything that I have needed him to be. So we're going to give him praise this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Just want to praise. Just want to praise you forever.
Father, in the name of Jesus, we come, Lord, one more time. We thank you, O oh God, for another day, the day that you have made. And we, your people, choose to rejoice and be glad in it, God. We thank you for this worship experience, God. And we have lived long enough to know that it's only worship if you show up. So, God, you are invited into this space. We welcome you into this place, God. We welcome you into our hearts, God. We pray that you would move by your spirit, that you would have your way, God, that your people would have an encounter with you, oh God. We lift up our pastor as he comes to share the word of God this morning, oh God. We pray that you would stand up in him and use him, oh God, so that when he proclaims the word, it will not return void, but it will accomplish what you set it out to, to do. We thank you, God, for this opportunity. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Hallelujah. Good morning, New Salem. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Everything that I need, everything that my heart desires, the Lord provides. He's not forgotten you even in this moment. He is with you even now in your current situation. It might not be perfect, it might not be good, it might hurt, there might be a little pain along the way, but we're here to remind you this morning that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me and he guides me and he directs me. He lets me lay in green pastures, new beginnings. He restoreth my soul. He makes things right. He corrects my downfall. He corrects my path. He provides light into my way. Who wouldn't serve a God like this? Who wouldn't magnify a king of kings and the Lord of lords? Do I have a witness in this place who is ready to stand onto your feet right now where you are and magnify the Lord, proclaiming that he is my shepherd? 
suffer. I shall not want. I shall not need. He's just that great. He's just that good. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord.
the game, but, but God showed up right in the nick of time and he reminded you that he's still alive and well. We're here to remind you today that you shall not want, you shall not need. It might feel that way, but God says that I never left you and I never will. How many know today that our God is great and greatly to be praised? He is there today, tomorrow, and next year. God is that just that good, just that amazing. Can you help us sing it again? We shall not want. together right where you are and give God some praise for he is great amazing sustaining we shall not want we shall not want well it has been a tough month it's been tough it's been hard I know I have struggled and I know you have as well being cooped up in the house not being able to get out and do the things that you were used to doing but how many know even in the situation that you're in that he has made a way for you he has made a way of protection. He has made a way of covering. How many know that if it had not been for the love of God in our lives, where would we be? Who wouldn't serve an amazing king like him? He's worthy. He made a way. Tell your neighbor, he made a way. I don't think y'all heard me. Tell your neighbor, he made, he made a way. Hallelujah to the Lamb. And you, you made a way. 
when our backs were against the wall and it looked
because you may. We're trusting here only because you may. We're trusting here only because you may. We're loving here only because you may, God. We're loving here only because you may. Yes, God. We're sustaining here only because you You move mountains, you cause walls to fall with your power. Perform miracles, there is nothing that's impossible. So we're standing here only because you may. We're standing here only because you may. We're standing here only because you Now, if you believe that, put your hands together and give God some praise. Come on. If you believe it, put your hands together and give God some praise. Hallelujah.
it's a great day to be alive. It's a great day to be alive. It's a great day to be alive. We welcome you to the New Salem Missionary Baptist Church located in Columbus, Ohio, where it's my pleasure to serve as pastor. My name is Keith Troy, and we're grateful that you've chosen to worship with us today. We ask you to pray with us and for us as we continue in this virtual service that God has blessed us with. Can we bow our, bow our heads in a word of prayer? Lord, our praise and worship team was so correct this morning. You do move mountains. We've seen you do it over and over and over again. Some of these have been mountains of despair, mountains of distress, mountains of uncertainty. God, if we're honest, mountains of fear and doubt. But here we are, another day's journey, another week's opportunity to praise your holy name. God, thank you for loving us. God, thank you for loving us. God, thank you for loving us. And because you love us, we not only can love you, but you give us the power to love others. Bless those who are watching, those who are listening, those who are here worshiping with us. We ask for your power and your presence today. It's your servant's prayer. Amen. Well, last week, we started you off on the sermon of God's mercy and my failures. And we gave you three major things. I was accused of leaving you on a cliffhanger last week. So we want to pick that back up this week and see if we can't travel on to the end. Our three things that we talked about last week that Moses, I'm sorry, that Paul, that Peter did wrong. We, he overestimated his strengths. He had the fear of disapproval of others. And we speak without thinking. Let me go slow. We told you that last week Peter's wrongdoings were in the areas of overestimating his strengths, fearing the disapproval of others, and speaking without thinking. We did not want to leave you just with the things that he did wrong and suffered the biggest failure of his life. But he also did some things right, and that's what we want to pick up this morning. Here are the things that we're going to go through and work with this morning. What were the things Peter did right and what are the things that we can learn from him so that we can do right when we suffer our own failures? These are actually some of the steps to recovering from financial failure, a marriage failure, a relational failure, a career failure, or any other failure in your life. What do you do? Here's the first of these three things. The first thing that you and I have to learn to do, the right thing to do, is we have to learn to grieve. Grieve the failure. Don't minimize the failure. Don't pretend it did not happen. Don't try to justify your failure. Don't rationalize your failure. You don't make excuses for your failure. Learn to grieve your failure. Feel the pain. Don't brush it off. Don't downplay it. And you feel the pain and you don't rush to feel better. Too many times people will tell you to get over it. Nobody can tell you how long your grieving is going to take. Here's a principle of life. To get past it, you got to go through it. 
To get past it, you got to go through it. That's true in so many areas, but it's particularly true when it comes to failure. You can't go around your failure, and you can't go over your failure. You can't go under your failure, and you can't ignore your failure. You need to grieve your failure. You need to be in touch with the pain. We don't like feeling bad, but grief is a good thing. Say that again, Pastor. Grief is a good thing. Grief is the way we get through the failure, and grief is the way we learn the lesson. So often when we fail, we want to just forget it, push it aside, stuff our emotions, and immediately go to the next thing. But I want to caution you, when you stuff your emotions, when you swallow your emotion, your stomach keeps score. It's kind of like what if you take a can of Coke and you shake it up for a long time and then you put it in the freezer. What's going to happen to it? It's going to explode. It's going to come out sideways. This happens in your life when you don't deal with your emotions properly. This is why sometimes six months after a failure, a marriage falls apart. Or six months after somebody gets laid off, there's another challenge, a physical health challenge, things like this. But because you've shaken up the can and you've got all these emotions and feelings inside of shame and regret and fear and insecurity, all these things that come with failure and you're not dealing with them. So you shake it up and we're just going to put this in the refrigerator and forget about it and it's going to explode. And oftentimes it doesn't explode over you, but it explodes over everybody you come in contact with. It's going to come out in ways, come out in ways like an affair, or in wrong behavior, or impulsivity, or in an addiction, or in all other kinds of ways. I've seen it many times in people's lives. You don't minimize it. You don't rush to feel better. To get past the failure, you've got to go through the failure, and you've got to learn to grieve. Matthew 26, 75 brings us to our focus this morning. When Peter heard the rooster crow, he remembered that Jesus had said, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Then Peter went outside and wept bitterly. There it is, wept bitterly. That's grieving. Imagine how upset Peter must have felt in himself. I just lived with the Son of God for three and a half years. I watched him do miracles. I watched him heal people. I watched him raise the dead. I watched him teach like no one else has ever taught. I watched him offer mercy and forgiveness to me over and over and over again. I watched him never do anything wrong, yet, the first time I was put to the test of my commitment, my faithfulness, my trust in Jesus, I denied him three times in a row because I was worried about what three strangers might think about me. Well, let me ask you this question. Are you more worried about what strangers think about you than your faith in God? Are you more embarrassed to let people know that you're a believer? That's that fear as he's disappointed, but Peter, I love the fact that he owns his failure. He owns up to his failure. He doesn't go, there's a good reason I did this. They might have killed me. He just goes out and he grieves. He's humbled by this and he's regretful of it. Grief, as I said, is a good thing. Matter of fact, I've discovered that grief is the key to healing. A lot of people want to take shortcuts when they have failure. 
They want to bypass the affair, put it out of sight and mind and go on. Yea, I failed business here. I'm going to go out and start another one right now. Yea, I just had a marriage fail, but I'm going to turn around and find somebody else immediately. And they rebound into another relationship, and they never learn the lesson. The problem is if you don't go through the grief, you don't learn what God wants you to learn from that failure, and then you take the same old you into a new marriage, into a new job, into a new goal, into a new dream, and nothing changes because you didn't learn anything the first time. Don't be afraid to feel bad. Matter of fact, I want to tell you, it's okay to feel bad. Grief is the way we get through transitions and losses and failures in life. The greater the failure in your life, the more time it's going to take to get through it. Let me repeat that. The greater the failure in your life, the more time it's going to take to get through it. You have to let God work in your heart and you have to let time work in your heart. You cannot force healing. You cannot rush feelings. You cannot, by sheer willpower, will yourself correct. I'm going to be different now. You just can't do it. Recovery is an act of God's mercy. Healing is an act of God's mercy. And it comes slowly with time. And recovery and growth comes in stages. All God wants you to do is just be honest. God, I blew it. I need to be humble here. The Bible says this in Psalms 51. And by the way, this is David's prayer wrote immediately after he committed adultery. The whole prayer is his prayer of confession. But in verse 17, listen to what he says. The sacrifice God wants is a broken and contrite spirit. God will not reject a humble and repentant heart. He's saying God is looking for humility and contriteness. You're right, God, I did blow it. But when you come to God and say, God, I'm brokenhearted over this. I had all my hopes pinned on this, but it didn't work. It failed. The business failed. The dream failed. The relationship failed. God, it failed. And I'm brokenhearted and a little bit more humble than I was. I don't think I'm the captain of my soul anymore. I don't think I'm the manager of the universe. I've got it all figured out. No, God, I messed up coming with a humble spirit and a contrite heart and a repentant attitude, God then says that's the person who's going to recover. So he does the first thing right, simply by grieving. The Bible says that when Peter heard the rooster crow, he wept bitterly. He went out and said, I have really blown it. And he felt the pain. But imagine if you would, that every time for the rest of Peter's life, when he heard a rooster crow, what do you think it reminded him of? Every time he heard a rooster crow, it probably reminded him of my biggest failure in life, and the rooster crowing became a trigger. And by the way, we all have triggers in our life. There are certain things that when you hear them or smell them or think of them or listen to them or whatever you see, them, it triggers the memory of your failures. You can't stop triggers. I can't even tell you how you stop those triggers. But you can't stop what they do to you. You do have a choice. 
You don't have to choose, you don't have a choice over your triggers. There are many things that are going to happen in your life when that happens, it reminds you of the painful failure in your life. But your choice then is, will I choose to focus on the mistake, the failure, the pain, or am I going to choose to focus on God's forgiveness, God's mercy, and God's grace? That's the choice. What will I focus on? My faults or his faithfulness? And that's what you can do. And here's what's going to happen. When you start changing your focus, Satan's going to stop hassling you about this. Satan knows your triggers, and he wants to condemn you. Here's what happens. Before you fail in some area, or before you commit a sin, Satan always minimizes the sin. He says, that's really no big deal. Things are different now. Everybody does it. Times have changed. We're in a different culture. It doesn't matter what God has said. It's okay. The moment you commit that sin, Satan changes his strategy to the exact opposite, and what he used to minimize, now he maximizes it. And he starts saying, are you kidding me? That's the biggest sin I've ever heard of. God will never use you. You're never going to be blessed. You're never going to have an answered prayer. You may as well give up. You are used material. You are damaged goods. You're wasted. You're wrong. You're not worth anything. You're going to sit on the bench for the rest of your life. Forget it. It's over. This is so big, God could never, ever possibly use you. See how he switched? He started out by saying to you and to me, it's no big deal if you do it. Then the minute you do it, he changes his strategy. And he says to you as he whispers in our ears, it's the biggest sin you could have ever committed because Satan doesn't want you to focus on God's mercy. He wants you to focus on your pain. When you don't understand who you are, you still have a soul pain. You don't have your identity, you give in to these kinds of fears over and over, and Satan and other people can just whip you around and manipulate you with all kinds of memory triggers. You need to say every time that trigger brings the thought, the memory, that painful mistake, I'm just going to say, yep, I was wrong, but thank God for his grace. Yes, I blew it, but thank God for his mercy. I messed up, but thank God for his love. Thank God for his forgiveness. Thank you, God. I am a trophy of grace. Here's what's interesting. When Satan figures out that every time he used that trigger, you're going to praise God, he's going to stop hassling you about it because he certainly doesn't want you doing that. All of a sudden, it's not working anymore. If he can pull a trigger and you can get into depression, he's going to keep pulling it. But if he can pull a trigger and it causes you to praise God for his mercy and grace, he says, I don't want to use that anymore. Understanding the deep pain that causes you to give in, to overestimate your strength, to speak when you shouldn't, and to live for the approval of other people. When you know who you are and whose you are, you know God's mercy and God's grace is going to be there. I'm a child of God, so even though I just really blew it, God is still going to love me. He's not going to change. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a miracle of mercy. That's the first thing that happens that Peter did right. But let me hasten to the second thing Peter did right. And this is going to sound awful funny, but it's right there in the scripture. It says what Peter did right, the second thing, is that he let his small group support him. Say, wait a minute, Pastor, where do you see that? 
The very first thing Jesus did when he started his ministry was he formed a small group. He chose 12 people to be a part of his small group. That's why we made such a big deal here at New Salem about small groups, because Jesus did it. And for 300 years, all Christianity was done in small groups. They didn't have large buildings and large churches. All Christianity for 300 years was done in small groups, house to house. So I let my small group support me. Let me show you an example in the text with Peter getting support from his small group. It's in Mark 16, verse 10. It's Easter morning. You know that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary had gone up to the tomb of Jesus and the angel said, he's not here, he's gone. Go tell the disciples. So the Bible says Mary Magdalene went and found the disciples together, grieving and weeping. You missed it, so let me go get it again. Mary Magdalene went and found the disciples together, grieving and weeping. When you go through a major failure in your life, you must resist the urge to isolate yourself. When you go through a major failure in your life, you must resist the urge to insulate yourself. When you get laid off from work, you don't want anybody to know about it. When you have a bankruptcy, you don't want anybody to know about it. When you have a failure in your life, you want to keep it a secret. That's the worst thing you could do. You don't need to tell everybody, but you do need to tell a few people who love you, who are going to pray for you, who will support you. When you share a problem in your life, it's cut in half. The burden is cut in half. When you share a joy with your small group, it's double. You were never meant to go through life on your own. Say it again, Pastor. You were never meant to go through life by yourself. We're better together. We are meant for community. And the basic union of life is a small group. Jesus formed a small group. Where does Peter go instantly? After his biggest failure, he doesn't go and hide in a cave. He goes to a small group. The disciples were together grieving and weeping. Now you need godly support more than ever. But that's not the only example. Not only Easter morning, but Easter night, the same day. It says that evening, the disciples were together with the doors locked. They were in a house group, a home church. They were in a small group. The doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leader. They had killed Jesus. Maybe they were going to kill them too. Maybe they were going to crucify them. It's Easter, so Jesus has risen. Suddenly, the text says, Jesus appeared in the middle of the group and said, Peace be with you. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. But I will tell you this. I've not just experienced this in the text. But I've seen Jesus show up in small groups over and over again through words and emotions and prayers of other people. I sat in groups after groups and someone starts talking and I know it's God talking to me in that moment. He's talking directly to you and you better listen. It may be their mouth, it may be a man, it may be a woman. He doesn't really matter who it is. I'm talking to you and God's presence shows up in my life in the middle of the small group. I've seen it happen over and over. And if you've been in a small group for any length of time, you've had to feel God's presence. Jesus often shows up in small groups. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there in the midst of them. 
not physically, but my presence is there. My spirit is there. His love is there. His mercy is there. And it shows up in the middle of the group. And if you've never had a group, been in a group, you'll miss it. You've got to understand that situation. Where two or three are gathered in my name. He says, I'm there with you. The reason this is so important when you have a failure is because in a crisis, we don't think straight. And the bigger the failure, the bigger the loss in our lives, the more you don't think straight and you need other people around you. Have you thought about this? Have you considered this? They just kind of keep you and calm you down and straighten you out. They're there to support you and they're there to pray you through this. But there's a third example of Peter in a small group. It's in John 20, verse 26. It says, a week later, the disciples were together again, meeting in a home. Remember last week I told you that Jesus rose from the dead. He stayed around Jerusalem for another 40 days. He didn't just go right back to heaven. It says a week later, the disciples were together again, meeting in a home. They're having their weekly small group meeting. They're meeting every week. In fact, for the next 50 days after Peter's big failure and after the cross and the resurrection, about all the disciples did was get together in a small group. They pretty much hung out together, kind of processing what in the world did we just go through? The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. They're going through this trauma together and they're coming to this small group over and over. I don't think I have to repeat to you how important small groups are. The best time to build a supportive network in your life is before the crisis. You're going to have some rogue winds in your life. You're going to have some tough times. The virus is going to find your family and my family. You're going to have some major pain in the days ahead. Count on it. This is earth. It's not heaven. We're going to experience losses. We're going to have deaths. We're going to have major illnesses. We're going to have all kinds of challenges that we don't even know about and I don't know about. The time to get your support system in place is now. Not in the crisis. Fortunately, Peter had a small group he'd been in for three and a half years. So when he had his biggest failure, he had a place to go and say, boy, I messed up. Yeah, you did. But guess what, Peter? We messed up too. So let's all encourage each other. So he had a place to go. He grieved. He let his small group support him, which brings us to the third point. The third thing he did right was he learned to cast himself on God's mercy. There's a shout that goes right there. We know this and we know Peter did this because Peter wrote about it. Peter writes two books in the Bible, but in 1 Peter he starts the whole book out by talking about how God has shown him mercy. In verse 1 and 2 he says it's Peter talking and he tells who he's writing to. Then the first thing he talks about in this book is God's mercy. It's right there in 1 Peter First uh, Peter 1 verse 3, because of his grace mercy, he knew that God had shown him mercy. God has given us a new life. I'm not the same old Peter. I'm a new Peter. I got a new life. I'm not that old guy you knew. I'm a new man in Christ. God has given us a new life by raising Jesus Christ from death. This fills us with a living hope. You missed it. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have a living hope. Peter has had a massive failure in his life. But Peter's not going around in despair. He's not going around in condemnation. 
He's not going around in guilt. He's not walking around in shame. He's not walking around in regret. He's not timid and going, God could never use me. No, he's saying, I'm walking in hope. My life is filled with hope. In spite of my failures, I still have hope. Why? Because of the mercy of God. And later in the same book, in that fifth chapter, seventh verse, here's what he says. Cast all your cares. Because he cares for you. Why did Peter tell people to do that? Because that's what he did when he failed. He just cast all his anxiety. He cast himself on the mercy of God. I, I had to look up that word cast because I really wanted to understand what he was talking about there. And, and the word there doesn't mean like you're fly fishing, casting, where you're kind of like just going back and forth. No, that's not what that word means there. This kind of cast, all your cares, is really more like when you're carrying a giant boulder and the boulder's so big you can't throw it three feet. Basically, it just means that when you've got the boulder and it's too big and it's too heavy, you just drop it where it is. When he says cast your anxiety, drop it where it is. He means take them and drop them. Let it go. You don't have to throw it. You don't have to toss it. You just drop it. God, I'm dropping it right here. I'm dropping my fear. I'm dropping my anxieties. I'm dropping my insecurity. I'm dropping my guilt. I'm dropping my shame because you're loving and merciful God. I'm going to drop all this stuff I'm trying to carry. What does it mean to cast yourself on the mercy of God? It means to pray something like this, God, there's no way I deserve your forgiveness. I blew it. There's no way I deserve your mercy. I thumbed my nose at you over and over again. I've ignored you so much of my life. I've made some dumb mistakes. God, there's no way I deserve your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your love. But God, you're a kind God. You're a loving God. You're a merciful, forgiving God. So I'm throwing myself on your mercy. I need a fresh start. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it, but you're a merciful God. So I'm just going to ask you to do what you do and love me and show me some mercy. That's his antidote to everything that Satan says to you. So much of the time, Satan is whispering in your ear. You're not good enough. Who do you think you are? You think God could ever use you? Why do you think God would answer your prayers after all the stuff you've done? All those dumb decisions you made. You're not going to, as I said, he's always maximizing things. No way God will forgive you. He does not want you to focus on his mercy. But here's the antidote. Here's the answer to the viruses in your life. Satan's always going to focus on the negative thoughts. When you cast your cares, you lose your despair. Because then Jesus moves into action. The moment you say, God, I'm throwing myself on your mercy, what does Jesus do with our failures? It's right there. It says, because Jesus says before Jesus even arrested was, before Jesus was even arrested, 
Look at what he says to Peter in advance. Jesus tells Peter some stuff before he even gets arrested. It's in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, understand, Simon, Simon. By the way, you know Peter's name was actually Simon Peter. Sometimes it's called Peter, sometimes he's called Simon. Peter actually means rock in Greek, and it was Peter bar Jonah, which means the son of John. Peter bar Jonah. He says, Simon, Simon, he's talking to him with tenderness. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He wants to test you. He wants to turn you upside down, inside out. He doesn't think you're going to come through. I know you will, but he doesn't think you. So Satan wants to mess with you. He wants to bother you. He's telling him it's going to happen. You're going to get messed with. You're going to have haters. You're going to be tempted. But look at the text. But Jesus said, I have prayed for you in advance. I already prayed for you that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned back to me, there's a third thing, when you repent and turn back to me, strengthen and build up your brothers. In other words, I want you to use your pain to help somebody else. I want you to use your faith to build up not just yourself, but other people to encourage, to help. Take your pain and bless somebody else. So what do we learn? Out of this. Jesus does this with our failures. Can I let you in on a little secret? He's not shocked when we fail. Jesus goes, Satan wants to sift you. He predicted Peter's temptations long before it happened. He even said, you're going to deny me. He already knew it. God is not surprised or caught off guard by anything we do, good or bad. He already knows everything in advance. He already knows our weak spot. The message paraphrase of Matthew 26 says, you're going to fall to pieces because what happens to me. He knew this was going to happen. The Bible says in Psalms 103 verse 14, God certainly knows what we are made of. He bears in mind that we are dust. In other words, God knows we're not God. He knows we're not perfect. We're going to mess up. We're going to falter. We're going to fall. We're going to fumble. We're going to flub it up. He knows our frame. He knows we're not perfect. And not only does he know everything about you and what's inside you, he also knows every temptation, every trick that Satan's going to throw at you. So he's not surprised. He's not shocked when we fail. But there's a third thing that may surprise you. While we are failing, he's praying for us. Jesus told Peter before he had failed, to Peter, this is going to happen. But look at the text. I've already prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And Jesus' prayers are answered. I prayed for you that you will not fail. In Hebrews 7, it talks about this. By the way, do you know what Jesus is doing right now in heaven? The Bible says right now in heaven that Jesus is praying for us. When you pray for someone, it's, it's called intercession. When you pray for someone, you intercede for them. And the Bible says that Jesus is interceding for you and me right now. He's living to do that in heaven right now. He's praying for you, for your temptations, for your failures, for all the stuff you're going through, for the ones you're going to have tomorrow and the next. The Bible says in Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save us completely. 
because he lives to intercede on our behalf. He's always talking to his father, asking him to help us. Wait a minute. Jesus talking to his father, praying to his father. Would that not suggest that God is actually talking to himself? Well, don't find that strange. Don't you talk to yourself? I know I talk to myself. And we're made in God's image. So if you talk to yourself, God can talk to himself. And when God talks to himself about you, it's called prayer. And the Bible says God is praying for you. He says, Peter, I've already prayed for you. Before you even failed, I prayed for you. We'll make it through this. And he prays for us. Jesus is praying for you. That's the mercy of God. Which brings us to the third thing that Jesus does when we fail. And this may be the most powerful thing. Even in my failure, he still believes in us. In fact, he expects us to recover. That's why he told Peter, even before Peter's big failure in Luke 22, 32, when you have repented and turned back to me, not if, not it might happen, he says, when? He says, I know you're going to come back to me. You're going to sin. You're going to fail. You're going to mess up. But when you come back to me, when you come back to me, I know you're going to blow it. But when you come back to me, that's the mark of a true believer. Not that we fail, but after we fail, we come back. Proverbs 24, 16. Even though a righteous man falls seven times, he will rise again. You know what I love about this verse? It says, even the good people mess up. Even righteous people fall. They make mistakes. Sometimes good people make dumb decisions. It doesn't mean that we're evil. It means that we make dumb decisions in that moment. Sometimes we just blow it. Even good people, even righteous people have failures, and we fail repeatedly seven times. Yeah. I, I don't know if you figured this out yet, but I've lived long enough to understand this that my biggest weaknesses are habitual. You don't just do them one time and that's it. But I do them over and over and over. And if it's a weakness of yours, you're back there within an hour falling in the same area again and again and again. Thank God for Jesus. Because Jesus says, my mercy it isn't just for the one big time you mess up. My mercy is for those everyday mess-ups, those new morning mess-ups. All of a sudden, you take back control and you start worrying again and again. You worried about it and worry about it and worry about it. But his mercy will forgive 9,000, 100,000, 1 million times. God is a merciful God. He's more willing to show mercy than you're willing to ask for it. God's not shocked. He prays for us. He believes in us. We fell over and over again. But God says, I'm still going to believe in you. There's an example in the Bible, Jesus believing in Peter, from a little phrase you might miss happening on Easter morning. Remember a couple weeks ago at Easter, we were talking about the fact that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went up to the tomb. Maybe they were taking something, I don't know. But on Easter morning, an angel meets them and says, he's not here. He's gone, like he promised. He'll see you in Galilee. Now go tell the disciples. Notice what the angel says on Easter morning. 
It's in Mark 16, verses 6 and 7. The angel says, I know you're looking for Jesus Nazareth, who was crucified, but he's not here. He's risen from the dead. Lean in. Now go tell his disciples and tell Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee and he'll see you there just as he promised. Did, did you see the redundancy in the verse? He says, go tell his disciples and tell Peter. It, it causes me to raise a question. Why did he add Peter? Wasn't Peter a disciple? Wouldn't he be included when he had just said, go tell the disciples? But Jesus knew how discouraged Peter would be from his faith. Jesus knew just how much encouragement Peter needed, so he put out an additional, go tell my disciples, and especially tell Peter. Here's good news today. When you fail, God knows your name. And he gives you a personal word of encouragement. Go tell my disciples, and especially Peter. I know how bad he feels. I know he's taking the hardest. He's taking the hit. He's feeling ashamed. He's feeling regretful. He's down in the dump. Go tell my disciples, and Peter. I'm alive. I kept my promise. He singles him out. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what kind of God we serve. He singles us out. That's his love. And it leads us to the fourth thing that Jesus does when we fail. He shows us mercy when we're down. He doesn't beat us up. He doesn't pile on. He doesn't add to our guilt. He doesn't add scorn and shame and scolding. He saves us. He loves us. He, he, he knows we fail. He doesn't just come and say, let me tell you how bad you do. No, Every time we fall, he shows us mercy. It's in John 21, verses 1 through 14. It's a couple weeks after the resurrection. It's about, like about now, it's a couple weeks after, so right about now, Jesus, been around about 40 days, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. Some of the disciples were there, and Simon Peter said, I I'm going fishing. Don't miss that. Simon Peter says, I'm, I'm going fishing. That's a statement of depression. I, I, I'm going back to doing what I was doing before I met him. I, I haven't recovered from this trauma. It, it, it's, it's two weeks later from the biggest failure in my life, and, and all I need to do is go back and do what I used to do before I started following him three and a half years. I've been following him for three and a half years, but two weeks later, I'm ready to go back. All I know to do is to go fishing. Before him, I was a professional fisherman. I'm down. I'm discouraged. I'm not feeling good. I'm going fishing. Anybody want to go with me? And the amazing things, everybody else says, yeah, we'll go with you. Well, come to. They all said, so they went out in the boat. But even though they had fished all night, they caught nothing. You ever felt like that? I've been looking for a job for months. I fished all night. 
and I've caught nothing. I've been looking to get married for so long. I fished all night, and I've caught nothing. I've been waiting for my ship to come in. I fished all night, and I caught nothing. Failure after failure after failure. These are professional fishermen. If anybody should catch fish, it's professional fishermen. They fished all night and caught nothing. It's a failure. Here's another failure in their life. But the text picks us up and says, at dawn, disciples saw a man standing on the shore, but they couldn't see it was Jesus. He called out, friends, have you caught anything? Not a thing. They replied. They were honest about their failure. Then Jesus says, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get plenty of fish. So they did what Jesus said to do. So they did what Jesus said to do. And they instantly caught so many fish, they couldn't even draw in the nets because it was full of fish. You may have fished all night and caught nothing, but I've lived long enough to know God can do more in five minutes in your life than you can do in 50 years of planning. They'd fish all night and caught nothing. You've been planning this dream of yours for so long and it's just gone nowhere. When they did what Jesus said to do, they caught more than they could possibly handle. God can do more in your life in a few seconds if you'll just obey him than you can do with all your schemes and plans and get over rich. So they caught all these fish and it was just so, if you obey God. Then John said to Peter, it's the Lord, you think? Look what happens next. When Peter realized that he put on his tunic when he had stripped for work, they've been fishing all night, he's out there with the fellas, so while they're out, he doesn't want the smell to get on his robe, so he's literally out there fishing with no clothes on. And John says, it's the Lord. It says when Peter realized he put on his tunic, jumped into the water, and swam ashore, leaving the others in the boat to pull the loaded net to shore, for they were only about 300 feet. When they got to shore, they saw that Jesus was cooking fish and bread over charcoal fire. Jesus said, bring some of the fish you caught. So Peter went back aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was filled with 153 large fish, and yet the net had not torn. That's another miracle. Because if you know anything about the Bible, you know they were constantly mending their nets because they were always breaking. But in this instance, when Jesus met them three and a half years earlier, they were mending their nets. Now, come and have some breakfast. Now, we're sure it really was the Lord. Then Jesus served them. He's being kind. He's being loving. He's being merciful. He cooked them breakfast. The bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. Let me try to put this in context. Let's talk about you and me. Let's say that you just went through your worst day of your life as Jesus is arrested, tortured, and murdered. You've gone through the worst day of your life and your best friends desert you, don't show up and more than deny you and pretend like they don't even know you. Two weeks later, would you cook breakfast for them? I, I'm not that same. 
But that's mercy. He's showing how much he loves them, even after their betrayal, even after denial. He cooks them breakfast. I don't know about you. I wouldn't cook for anybody. But that's God's mercy. Because God's mercy toward us is not dependent on our performance. The Bible says it like this. Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. It says his mercies are new every morning. We've got the same old sins, but we get new mercies. Every single morning. It says, great is your faithfulness. God is faithful to you in his mercies. No matter what we do, we realize God is faithful. God is faithful. Aren't you glad that God is faithful in spite of our unfaithfulness? Well, that brings us to the final thing. He uses our failures to build his church. It's in the text. Luke twenty-two thirty-two. 32. Peter, when you have turned back to me, strengthen and build up your brothers. He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God, the church. Use your failures to strengthen and build up others. Here's the rest of the story. They're on the beach in Galilee, John 21. After breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter replied, then feed my lambs. Jesus said, my flock, that's the church. Then feed my lambs, Jesus said. Then Jesus repeated the question, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. I want you to take care of the body of Christ. That's the church. Take care of the sheep. Jesus said, then Jesus asked the same question one more time. Peter, do you love me? Peter grieves that Jesus asked him the question the third time. Then he says, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus replied, then feed my sheep. The way you show your love for God is by helping other people in the family of God. Why did Jesus ask this question three times, do you love me? He was giving Peter the opportunity to make up for his three denials. I will never deny you, I will never deny you, I will never deny you, and he did one, two, three times. So he said, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Here's what I learned about God. For every denial, he gives me a chance to cancel it out. Let's go back to the beginning. Both Judas and Peter are friends of Jesus. Both of them committed the same sin. They both denied Christ. The exact same sin, just different experiences. They turned their back on him in this time of need. Judas becomes a traitor, but Peter becomes a teacher. Feed my sheep. What are you going to become from your failures? What are you going to allow the failures in your life to make you? A traitor or a teacher? It's your choice. The fact is, God is building his church on people who have failed. God only uses failed people because there aren't any failures, there aren't any non-failures in life. Matthew 16, 18 says, Now I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Don't miss the play on words here. Because the word Peter is the word Petros, 
in the word rock is the word Petra. The two very different words. He said, you are Peter Petros, but I'm going to make you Petra, the rock, on which I, with my mercies, am going to build on your faith and on your face. Petros, Peter means literally stone. It means a small rock, a pebble. So Peter really was a pebble. He was a stone. His name, stone, Petra, means giant rock. A boulder. It can be a cliff of rocks. It can be a mountain of rocks. It can be the rock of Jehovah. So a uh, Petra, Jesus said to this man who just had this enormous failure just a few days earlier, you are unstable. You put your foot in your mouth. You've been impulsive. You denied me. You've been a little stone. But I'm going to make you a rock of Gibraltar. Not because of you, but because of my mercy. The past is the past. And we're going to go on. And I choose you because I'm going to build my church on your faith. Ain't that good news? To know that God can take my failures. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be this. I don't have to be that. It's not my pedigree. It's not the fact that my daddy is this. My dad. God said, until you failed, I can't use you. And ladies and gentlemen, that's good news. Because God takes our failures and applies his mercy. And that's how he builds his church. He can't build his church unless you fail. So I challenge you this morning. If you failed, you're a candidate for God to use you. My, my, my. That's good news. In spite of my flaws, my faults, and my failures, I have now qualified myself to be a part of the people that God uses. Not to bring me glory or attention, but uses me to build his church so that other people with failures can become a part of the family of God. So in this moment, we invite you to bring your faith so God can bring you into the family to use you to bless somebody else. If you've been a failed businessman and he wants to use you to help another businessman not repeat the same thing. If life has mistreated you, you've been molested, you've been abused, whatever the failures have been, God says, I don't waste a failure. I want you to take your failures and I want to use that failure to give you a ministry that's going to bless other people that think they can't make it. But when you tell your story, you're going to help build the kingdom of God. So we open up the doors of church. We invite you not only to New Salem, but become a part of God's family. Bring your faults, your flaws, and your failures. He's a merciful God. He's a loving God. He's a forgiving God. There's your shout right there. I don't care what we've done. I don't care what mistakes we've made. He's a forgiving God. He blesses us beyond our ability to understand. If folk knew what we had done, nobody would listen to us. But God knows everything about us. And in spite of what he knows, he still invites us 
to be new generations people upon this rock I will build my church won't you make the decision today for his glory our edification so God can use you to bless somebody else is there one I don't care if you're in Columbus you're anywhere watching us this is not about a decision for New Salem, although we would love to have you a part of our family. It's a kingdom decision. It's a decision of freedom, of liberation. Saying, I no longer have to let my past define who I am. I can admit my failures and still realize that God's going to use me. All the people you saw in worship today, singing and playing and praying and preaching, filming and editing, We've all had our failures. But in spite of that, he's our God and we're his children. We invite you to become a part of the family. Amen, amen, and amen. Church, say amen. Three ways that you can connect with the New Salem family and with God, you can send a text to 614-568-4858. You can also send an email to nsprayerministry at newsalemcares.com and also visit our church at newsalemcares.com connect. Those are three ways that you can be a part of the New Salem family and we'll be more than grateful to continue to minister to you and pray with you and for you. We want to remind you, it's giving time in New Salem. We thank you again for your stewardship, your generosity. God has tremendously blessed us to make a difference in the marketplace, whether it be through our food pantry or other means of helping our kids who are in school or continue to help with the feeding of those in the community. We're just excited about what God's allowing us to do. So we encourage you to give you five options in order to help us in our stewardship. No, option number one is you can visit church.newsalemcares/give. Option number two is use the Shelby Next app. Option number three is cash app, dollar sign NS Cares. Option number four, you can text your amount to 614-333-0656, or you can drop by, mail it to us, your gift to the New Salem Baptist Church, and we will process it that way. Ladies and gentlemen, we're excited to share with you our major announcements this morning, and so our announcements are going to come immediately at this time. Certainly let me give thanksgiving for all of those who've joined with me here in ministry, our praise and worship team, our musicians, our video and audio team. Uh, they have done an outstanding job these five weeks. We could not have done any of this without them. I'm grateful for their commitment, their demonstration of love of God and love of this ministry. I ask you not only pray for me, but pray for them as God continues to use us. We pray for protection for them and their families. I'm grateful to have my wife with us this morning as well as she prays us through this. Also want to send a shout out to all my young people and all my children and say, Pastor, miss hugging you. We're going to have to come up with some new ways once we get back, but no pastor loves you and pastor's praying for you. So we now give you the benediction. We look forward to God doing all he can this week. We pray his strength and his power. God, thank you for reminding us because we have failures, we get brand new mercies every morning.
Bless this house. Bless these people. We ask in your son's name. Amen, amen, amen. We look forward to you joining us next Sunday at 11 o'clock as we continue in our virtual worship experience. God bless you and God keep you. Amen.